men. He will hold us fast as a sweet promise this morning, as a sweet promise every morning. Well, I'm delighted to be with you this morning on Graduation Recognition Sunday. And if you'll take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Peter 1.6, we'll be looking at one verse. But as we begin, I want to ask a, a few probing questions to get our minds thinking upon God and His goodness. I want to ask, how are we to think about God and His goodness if we are faced with an incurable disease? If a loved one passes unexpectedly, if we remain single or infertile, how are we to think about the comfort of God when it feels like the spouse in whom we love doesn't love us back? How are we to find joy when this world, in fact, hates us for who we claim to be a part of, for who we claim to be united to? Well, in light of the symbolism of our graduates going off into this world, I want to preach on this one verse. And in this one verse, we see one of the most confounding realities in all of the New Testament and really in all of the Bible. And it's this, Christians will suffer. You will suffer. You will suffer unimaginably. But in their suffering, in the Christian's suffering, there is still reason to rejoice. Well, Peter helps us answer this reality in this great epistle. So let's look at 1 Peter 1.6 and then we'll pray. Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, you are a good and righteous God. You know all things. In fact, all things were ordained by your sovereign hand. Father, even the pit that we may be in right now, we know is ultimately for our good. Father, and I pray that those who are in a pit of despair, in a pit of suffering, and a trial that is unimaginable, Father, that they would see great hope even this morning. That they would have a hope that's only connected to the Son, Jesus, to your Son, and through his sufferings. Father, would you be so good to sanctify us in your word because we know that your word is true. Father, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I were to give you one answer to the reason why Peter is writing this letter, I would have to say is this. It is for the good of the believer who is facing various trials. In fact, 1 Peter 4, verse 12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised, do not be shocked at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter is repeating this same type phraseology all throughout his letter. Now, many of the various trials in which Peter faced and the people in Peter's time faced were persecutions. There were people being martyred. There was much physical harm being done and being committed against Christians in the years surrounding A.D. 60. 
This letter was written at the height of Nero's reign. And if you know who Nero is, he is a bad guy. He's a bad man. He's an evil doer. He hated Christians. In fact, he wanted to stomp out Christianity. He hated it so much that he went on a killing spree. Now, in our context, these trials aren't the same, but we do face similar trials. We face the sufferings of this world. We face death. We face trials, disease, divorce, abuse, all sorts of trials that we face. And rather focusing on a specific trial, what I want to do is answer the question of how are we supposed to deal with trials when they come? How are we supposed to deal with the trial when they come upon us? And I have two questions I want us to answer this morning about this verse. First, what are we to rejoice in? What is it that Peter is rejoicing in? And secondly, how should we think about the trials when they come upon us? Because they will come upon us. First question, what are we to rejoice in? Peter writes in this verse, verse 6, in this you rejoice. So if you're a good reader of God's word, you naturally ask, what's the this that Peter is talking about? Naturally, it's found in the preceding verses. And there's three things that I believe that Peter is telling us that we can always, as Christians, no matter what the trial is, we can always find a reason to rejoice. First, as a Christian, as a believer, we can always find a reason to rejoice in the new birth. Look at verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're born again if you're a believer. The power of the gospel does not depend upon the preacher or his eloquence. I could stand here and preach to you for hours, but had God not awakened, had God not caused you to be born again, you would be dead in your sin and in your trespasses. However, however, there is great reason to rejoice if you are a Christian. Our hearts, our souls, our minds are no longer dead, but they are alive to not only this world and the sin in this world, but they're alive to the things of God. They love the things of God. They hope in the things of God. That's what a born-again Christian is. And if we have an alive mind, we won't be able to stay in our sin because we know that that sin was the very reason that Christ went to the cross. He went to die for. And praise God. Praise God. We have been given new hearts. You know that? Your, your heart's no longer dead, but... It's alive. And if you have an alive heart, you have new affections. You have new desires. You have new wills that actually want to honor God instead of hate the things of God. And when we do sin, which how many of you have sinned today? Yeah, you should all be raising your hands. When we do sin, as Christians, we repent. We repent. We turn back to God. But think about this. You have reason to rejoice that God has not only stirred us 
to believe in Christ, but he is actually giving you the ability to believe in Christ. He is actually giving you the ability to possess Christ and to live in Christ. Friends, if you're going through a trial this morning, you have much reason to rejoice if you're a Christian. And one of those reasons is because you have been born again. You've been born again to a living hope. Secondly, we can always, Christian, we can always find reason to rejoice in our inheritance. In our inheritance. Peter says in verse 4 that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Have those words memorized. Have those words memorized. It's kept there. Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, Christian, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing. Paul doesn't say, Paul doesn't say that you will know. He says, knowing as a Christian that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Because Christ died. Those words should cause great rejoicing, believer. I should see smiles all over the believers' faces in this room. You have an inheritance that's past this life, past this dead world. Currently, we live under a plague of death, but in heaven, there will be no more. No more death, and we will only know life. Now, here on this earth, we have an imperfect knowledge of Christ Jesus, but in heaven, we will know the Lord as we have been fully known. Now, our rest is tormented our sleep is tormented by our anxieties but in heaven the waves of doubt will no longer exist now your work it fades it's weak but in heaven our work will be pleasing to the lord forever actually if we were all to come back here in less than 50 years you know what we would see at this spot we would either see this church building as dilapidated as destroyed or as repurposed or it perhaps is renovated again why because nothing in this life remains the same nothing in this life remains the same it's not supposed to we live in a perishing defiled and fading world but this is not the case for heaven This is not the case for where we are going. Christ Jesus, the firstborn among the dead, has earned an inheritance for you. He has tasted the wrath of God in order that you might taste the mercy of God. He was given a crown of thorns in order for you to get a crown of righteousness. He was nailed to a cross, plunged into death, in order that you might have victory over death. In order that you might sing with all the saints that have went before you, death has no sting and death has no victory for the believer that's the things we are rejoicing in right now even in the midst of our trials friends we have so much to rejoice in in our trial in our temptations in our sufferings and in our inheritance is one of those things third we can always find reason to rejoice a reason to rejoice in God's keeping power. Look at verse 5. Peter writes, By God's power you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
the very fact, believer, that you are believing and you have faith right now and you are continuing to believe right now is not because you did it. It's the power of God. The devil has not, nor will he ever, thwart the plan of God's salvation for his children. If God has elected us, then he will redeem us through his blood. And if he has redeemed us through his blood, then he will certainly keep us by his Holy Spirit. And he is doing that even now. He's doing that even now. <clears throat> One pastor wrote, Faith is aroused by grace, upheld by grace, energized by grace. Grace reaches into the soul of the believer, generating and maintaining faith. By God's grace alone, we trust Christ. And by God's grace alone, we will continue to trust Christ. It's not of us. It's only by God's keeping power. If you are believing this morning that Christ is the Son of God, that He reigns on high and that He emptied Himself, coming in the form of a man to die on a cross for your sins, if you are believing in that truth, even if it seems to be waning, then you have great reason to rejoice. You should be rejoicing, believer. You should be rejoicing. Think on how our Savior kept his own disciples. He says to doubting Thomas, Thomas says to other disciples, he's like, hey, listen, I'm not going to believe that Christ rose from the dead until I put my hands in his wounds, until I feel it myself. What does Jesus do? He says, Thomas, come and feel. Come and feel. He knew what Thomas needed. He knew what Thomas needed. He kept Thomas in that way. Think on Peter. Think on Peter. Denying Peter, arrogant Peter. Guess what Jesus knew Peter needed? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter denied Christ three times, and then here Christ is reconciling Peter to himself and says, Do you love me? He says, Of course. Of course, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Fulfill my purpose. Believer, be rest assured, if you are his and he is yours, then he is going to keep you. He is going to guard you. He's going to purify you. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to continue to make you his. Friends, do we not have much to rejoice in this morning? Do you not have much to rejoice in this morning? If you are saved then you have so much to rejoice in in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your heartaches. Now, I'd like to transition to the second question that arises from our text. How are we to think about the various trials in our life? Well, we see in our text the word grieved. I think the word grieved is an adequate translation however some have translated translated as you have been given over to the heaviness the heaviness of various trials if you have ever been in a significant trial in your life I promise you it feels heavy it feels heavy you feel like the whole world is upon your shoulders it feels like the world is collapsing in around you and you have no idea what to do and you begin to ask yourself why in the world 
would God give me this obstacle? Does he not know that I've been a faithful member of Morning View for 50 years? Does he not know that how I serve? Does he not know that I give diligently? I give 10%. Does he not know that? Is he not aware of how I've served my family and done family worship night in and night out? I mean, can God not see that I sing, that I pray, that I serve in the nursery? Why would God give me, give me such a trial? Why would he load me down with these burdens? Well, I just want to let you know, as a pastor, I've seen those questions come out. I've said those questions. These questions are actually quite normal, but often they're influenced by what? Our sin. They're influenced by our pride. They're influenced by our own self-righteousness in assuming that we don't deserve trials because of how we have kept the law. Friends, we have been insolent and disobedient to the law of God and God shows no partiality he shows no partiality in fact suffering itself shows no partiality so how are we to think about these trials these numerous trials these various trials that are coming upon us well I think the answer comes in verse 7 Verse 6 says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that, in order that, the tested genuineness of your faith, of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, notice the word tested. God actually tests those in whom he loves, those in whom he cares for. He will test you, seniors. He is going to test you. And let me be clear, this is not for God to see whether or not you have faith. It's not for him to, hey, I got a microscope, I'm looking down through the corridors of time, and I got to see whether or not they have faith. Why do we know this? Because God's the one who gave us our faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says, For by grace you have been saved, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift. It's a gift from God. This testing, this testing, however, is for your good. It's for your perseverance. When the fiery trial comes upon you, this testing is for your good. Friends, a faith that is tested is durable. It's strong. It's unyielding to the schemes of the devil. Remember Christ prays for Peter before his denial and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded. Imagine Satan demanding something from God. That's crazy to me. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I, Jesus, the Lord Jesus, have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The Lord is keeping his saints Beloved, our very Christianity depends upon faith. And yes, it's a faith that relies solely on God and solely in the work of Christ and really Christ himself, but it is also a faith that is continually being strengthened by the trials that come upon us. Even the greatest warriors of the Christian faith were tested by trials. Think of these men 
John Bunyan spent 10 years in prison. Martin Luther was excommunicated. John Calvin was expelled from Geneva. John Newton went blind. Jonathan Edwards was fired by congregational vote. Spurgeon struggled with depression and was eventually censored for preaching the gospel. Censored by the churches around him for preaching the good news of Christ. Yet all those trials, every single one of those trials were for the good of the believer to strengthen and to comfort them in their faith. Psalm 23 teaches this very reality that we read this morning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I'm experiencing suffering upon suffering upon suffering, I will fear no evil. You want to know why this believer could fear no evil? Because he knew that God was with him. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this is a very important part of this sermon. I hope you hear it. There are times where the Lord will in fact use trials to draw his children back from a cliff of ruin. There are times where the Lord is going to use certain things to reveal your sin, to make your sin known to you, to convict you, so that you do not continue going off that ruin, going off that cliff. Psalm 32 says this, For when I kept silent, when I kept silent about my sin, and I did not confess it before the Lord. My bones wasted away. Here's this believer whose, whose bones feel like he's wasting away. His body feels like he's wasting away. He stayed in the guilt of his sin for so long. Through the groaning all day long, he says. He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God was pushing me down into the dirt. Pushing me down into the dust. And my strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Now what do you do when those trials come upon you? What do you do with all this sin that is your life? And you're sitting here like, God, I don't know what to do anymore. I have no idea. Well, the next verse says what you should do. I acknowledged my sins before God. I confessed my sins to God. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And guess what the Lord does? He doesn't say, get away from me, away from me, you nasty sinner. He says, come to me. You're forgiven. I love you. The prodigal son comes back to his father. The father doesn't say, get away. He says, come. And he hugs him. He loves him. He draws them back in through these trials. Friends, I fear that we see the trials in our life as a punishment from God or as a hindrance toward our growth in faith and not as a means of His grace to draw us to our knees, to draw us to faith. Notice, if you look down at 1 Peter 7, what happens for the believer. This is what happens for the believer You've been given these heavy trials, these various trials, so that your faith might result in praise and glory and honor 
when you see Jesus, when you see him face to face. It's like, it's like Peter is saying, hey, you're going to see Jesus face to face. And because you have been through all of these trials, all of these circumstances in your life, that moment when you see Jesus face to face, it will be an explosion of joy. It will be an explosion of love. I love this Christ. Then Peter, in verse 8, says something that has always astounded me and will astound me until the day I die. He says, though you have not seen him, though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Now why, why would that astound me? Well, it astounds me because Peter, he walked with Jesus, didn't he? He saw Jesus face to face, day in and day out. But not only did he see Jesus face to face, guess what? He saw Jesus resurrected. He saw the resurrected Christ face to face. And then he's saying, hey, I'm amazed, suffering Christian. I'm amazed, Christian, who's going through these various trials, that your joy, that you're rejoicing with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, how is this possible? How is this, how is this reality possible for the believer? It's only possible for the believer if they know who they are following in their suffering. If Christ did not go through the agonies of this life, how can he be our guide? If he had never travailed in darkness, how can Christ whisper sweet relief in our darkest hours? Friends, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in who, whom every respect, every respect was tempted as we are, yet he never sinned. Let us then, and hear these words from the writer of Hebrews. He says, let us then with confidence in the midst of our testing, in the midst of our temptation, let us then draw with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in a time of need. Now, with a room this big, I know there are some unbelievers in this room. And there are some people that may have never even heard the gospel in this room. And you may be thinking, okay, Jordan, why in the world will I believe upon this Christ when you've just said that I'm going to suffer. When you just said, I'm going to be tempted in so many different ways. Well, that's a good question. I wrote it too. Death and suffering are coming for us all. Since the fall of Adam, mankind was promised suffering and death. Every one of God's enemies tasted suffering. Cain, the first murderer in the Bible, guess what? He became a fugitive and a wanderer. Genesis 4 tells us. Pharaoh, that's what happened to Pharaoh. This mighty man, he lost his son, and he lost his army, and eventually lost his own life. Goliath, this great warrior, guess what? Was killed by this wimpy little king, David. Judas, who sold Christ for gold, for silver, hung himself. Not one enemy of God escaped suffering. The unbeliever will suffer in this life and in the next. Yet the believer, if you are a believer, you are being made ready for heaven through these sufferings and through these trials. 
And what we just sang earlier, he will hold us fast. Our faith will be what? Turned into sight. All these sufferings are preparing for us this revelation where we will see Jesus face to face. Now, with all that I've said this morning, I want to leave you with three quick applications. Three quick applications. First, when the fiery trial comes upon you, and it will come upon you, I want you to remember to be patient. The Lord remembers his promises and is faithful to bring his children to heaven. 2 Peter 3 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, toward you, believer, not wishing that any believer should perish, but for all to come to repentance. Begin to ask yourself, even now, what can I learn from this trial that the Lord has providentially placed me in? What can I learn from this? If it feels like you've been abandoned, Guess what? You're in good company. Christ was abandoned by those closest to him. But yet he still went through with the plan of God. He still went to the cross. Be patient, believer. Cast your anxieties upon him and know that he cares for you. 1 Peter 5. Secondly, secondly, I want you to remember that you are not alone in this trial. So many of us Feel like we're going through these trials, these heartaches alone, these sufferings alone. The Bible is very clear that the people of God are a family. There is no clearer evidence that you belong to God than when you jump into the pit of a suffering brother, suffering sister, when you go to them. Beloved, Christ was near to the brokenhearted. Jesus left the 99 to go after the one who was strained. We go after the sinning. We go after the suffering. We know not the reason why someone is straying. It could be their own sin, or it could be that they've been sinned against, or it could be just the effects of a fallen world. But we have to follow Christ, and we have to go after the suffering. If we don't, who will? Who will? I need your help. Guess what? I need you to come after me when I'm suffering, when I'm going through the trial. I need you to come and rebuke me when I need to be rebuked. I need you to come encourage me when I need encouragement. We have to do this for one another. If we don't, who else will? Who else will? We have to follow Christ. Think on Jesus for a moment. He has deep compassion for the needs of others. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus has a quick eye to see the need of the blind beggar. He, has, he is all eye, all ear, all heart, and all hand where misery is present. My master is made with tenderness, and he melts with love. True souls who love Christ, copy him in this. And ever let your hearts be touched with caring for the suffering and for the needy. Lastly, lastly, I want you to remember that The current trial you are in is for your good. It's not for your evil. It's for your good. You may be trying to find every escape from it. You may be trying to run from the trial that the Lord has providentially placed you in for a reason. Let me just ask you, when you're in that trial, what are you going to do? Are you going to sin? Are you going to continue to sin? 
When you lose your job, will you resort to stealing? If you've been reviled, will you revile? If you've felt the pain of someone else's sin, will you plot to see how you can repay evil for evil? I'm going to get him back. Or will these trials, these trials that you are in, be a cause for you to rejoice? Turn over to James 1, and we'll end with this passage. James 1. James 1 says in verse 2, I'll give you a second. I want you to actually see it. I know most of you know it. I want you to see it with your own eyes. James 1 says in verse 2, count it all joy. You notice what James doesn't say? He doesn't say, hey, hey guys, count it sometimes joy. Count it sometimes joy when you meet trials of various kinds. No, he says, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know, verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And this steadfastness will ultimately result in you becoming perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that perfect and complete means you're in heaven. Because we're not perfect and complete here. We're still imperfect people needing help. Some of you in this room are not trusting in Christ. You're not believing upon Christ even this morning. And I would encourage you. Christ went first through the suffering in order that you would follow him. In order that you could follow him. In order that you could believe in him. But he also was raised into newness of life. He was raised from the dead and he ascended on high in order that we would walk in newness of life today. That we would walk in these trials, that we would walk in these sufferings and that we would give glory to God and God alone because Christ went to the cross for us and Christ rose from the dead for us in order that we would follow him. Will you follow him today? Will you trust him today? Well, this morning, we are reminded that we are not alone in our suffering. The Lord's table is a picture of how Christ suffered in our place. His body was broken and his blood was poured out in order that we might be forgiven and reconciled to God. We come to this table this morning as imperfect saints seeking to believe, seeking to repent, seeking to follow Christ in these trials. Acts 2 says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. If you are doing those things, and if this describes you, you are welcome to this table. If you are a member of a Bible-believing church, we welcome you to this table. We would invite you to come, and we would invite you to reflect on how you are not loving Christ, even in these moments, and that you would repent before a holy God, and that you would joyfully take of this meal. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then our servants can come. Father in heaven, we do thank you, Lord, that you are a God who binds up the wounded hearts, that you aren't going to allow your children to stay in the pit forever.
Father. That you will, rot, you will make them to be those who are, are, are rescued or ransomed out, Lord. Father, I pray even now as we all are facing trials of various kinds and we know not exactly what that trial may be for each other. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be saints who would come alongside one another. Father, help us to remember our Lord's suffering in the table. Help us to remember his sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.